Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and thanks for joining me for another episode. I'm speaking today with Lucas White, the portfolio manager for GMO's climate change strategy. As many of you will know, GMO, the investment firm, was founded, or one of its founders is Jeremy Grantham, the very well-known and famous investor that I encourage you to Google if you're not aware of Jeremy and his exploits. During this episode, I'm talking with Lucas about the climate change strategy. I'm always wary about investing into so-called hot areas of the market, that people will inevitably end up buying assets that are overvalued and end up under-delivering. However, given GMO's very strong discipline investment process over the years and ability to find value in the market, I was very keen to talk to Lucas to understand how they've gone about building this portfolio that looks to exploit areas such as clean energy, the electric grid, agriculture, and energy efficiency to produce a compound annual return since inception of just over 18% per annum. I think you'll agree it's a fascinating discussion that I have with Lucas and one I found very enjoyable. Please remember to keep your feedback coming. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. You can also email me if you're interested in coming along to our live event that is now scheduled to be held in front of a live audience to celebrate our 100th episode on the 24th of February next year in Sydney and the following couple of weeks in Melbourne. So if you're interested in coming along to that, please drop me an email and we can see if we can arrange you a seat. Also, please don't forget to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast. And this is a reminder that this podcast isn't an endorsement of or a specific advice to invest and people are encouraged to receive their own advice and make their own inquiries before ever making investments. I hope you enjoy the episode as much as I did. Enjoy the podcast. Lucas White, welcome to Inside the Rope. Uh, Thank you for having me. Lucas, perhaps you could kick off for our listeners and give us uh, a bit of background to yourself and also GMO. Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, I started off my career a little bit more on the system side of things. So I was building trading systems and portfolio management systems, kind of custom systems for asset management companies. Uh, And then uh, around at the end of 2006, a little more than 15 years ago, I joined GMO to kind of transition into more of an investment role uh, where I was working on what was at the time our US equity group. Uh, And GMO is uh, one of the um, most interesting asset management firms out there. We have a unique founder in Jeremy Grantham. We have a unique approach to investing. It's got kind of a nice research orientation at the firm, and we're willing to make contrarian bets and, and do things a bit differently uh, from, from the rest of the industry. So there were a lot of things that were appealing about GMO to me, uh, and, and I was lucky enough to um, Get, get offered a, a position uh, as a quant analyst at the time uh, at GMO. And, and shortly after joining GMO, I got involved in running our quality strategy where we invest in large um, companies, generally speaking, that have some sort of sustainable competitive advantage uh, that allows them to be excessively profitable for many years at a time. 
uh, I ended up getting involved in running, I was running our US growth strategy, our US intrinsic value strategy. Uh, and then from around 2007 to 2011, our founder, Jeremy Grantham, was spending a lot of time doing research into resource scarcity uh, and ended up developing a thesis that commodity prices would rise in the decades to come due to the long-term supply and demand dynamics. Uh, and, and that really became a big opportunity for me because I got to work with Jeremy and others to design uh, a natural resources strategy and our work in the resources sector uh, ended up going from just kind of looking at fossil fuels in the energy sector to kind of adding on a lot of the clean energy uh, industries, solar, wind, biofuels, and so on and so forth, uh, and really evolved into our, our climate strategy uh, that we're excited about as well. So um, that in a nutshell, in a very, very brief uh, glimpse into uh, my past and, and a little bit about GMO. So Lucas, our listeners will detect straight off the bat, that's not an Australian accent. You're based in Boston, correct? Correct, yes, but we, we have an office in Sydney, uh, but our headquarters is in Boston, and we also have offices in London, uh, the San Francisco area, and a few other uh, places as well. And I note looking at your um, your your bio that, that you uh, you did college at, at Duke, you weren't a basketball player, were you? Uh, well, I'm a decent basketball player, but you have to be a lot better than decent to play at Duke. So I uh, was not invited to try out for the team, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but it's it's uh, an enjoyable thing to watch uh, the Blue Devils. And we've had uh, we had an Australian player, Jack White, shares my last name, but uh, not my genes, at least in any uh, uh, close thing. But he uh, he was an Australian player who played for us uh, for a few years, uh, just a few years ago. Now, for the benefit of our listeners who aren't familiar with GMO or Jeremy Grantham, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a strategy today, the the, the climate ch climate change. Uh, trust, which uh, you're a portfolio manager on. And, and I, I saw a quote from Jeremy, um, which, which I'll, I'll read it. You know, global warming will be the most important investment issue for the foreseeable future. That, that he, he is uh, pinned with saying in 2010. For, for the benefit of our listeners, just give a little bit of background as to Jeremy and his sort of role or position in investment markets. Uh, yeah, well, Jeremy uh, is really an investment legend. Uh, he's uh, been around, he's been involved in some huge calls in his career, including uh, calling the Japanese bubble back in the late 80s, where we went to 0% uh, in, in exposure to Japan, uh, when Japan was, I believe, 60 to 65% of the international developed benchmark at the time. So going, once again, GMO is willing to be contrarian and make big bets going 65% underweight Japan uh, was, was a big bet at the time and I'm sure super scary, uh, although I was in high school, uh, so uh, wasn't, wasn't feeling uh, the fear myself. Um, he also called the tech bubble uh, and, and GMO similarly had uh, little to no exposure uh, to, to tech uh, when, when that blew up. Uh, in 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, called the financial crisis. So Jeremy has a long history of calling big market events uh, ahead of time and not just calling them. It's one thing to call them. It's another thing to act on them uh, and to capitalize on them, either in the form of betting on something which does well or uh, avoiding exposure to something that ends up blowing up or performing very poorly. 
Uh, he's a, a super bright, uh, interesting guy to work with. Uh, he's in his early uh, 80s, but still sharp as a whip uh, and really a pleasure to work with. Um, and, and once again, he's he, on top of all of that, he's one of the kind of very first quantitatively oriented investors uh, and, and was one of the first proponents of indexing. So he has a number of, of kind of innovative things that he's been involved in or, or pretty um, impressive uh, things that he's been involved in in his career. Uh, and it's a pleasure to work with him. Lucas, can you tell us a little bit, a little bit about the Climate Change Trust? What, what are its objectives? When did it start? What sort of size it is, um, et cetera? Just give us some, give, give the listeners a feel for what it's trying to do and how it does it. Yeah, so uh, I guess I, I kind of neglected to mention this uh, during your last question, but or my answer to your last question, uh, but Jeremy's a huge climate uh, activist. Uh, he has a foundation of the vast majority of his wealth that's dedicated to the environment uh, with a particular focus on climate change. So culturally, that set GMO up very nicely to launch a climate change strategy. Uh, but our climate change strategy actually more naturally evolved out of the resources strategy that I mentioned earlier that I also uh, am, am uh, the lead portfolio manager for. Uh, when we were looking at the resources sector and we were looking at the energy uh, industry in particular, we were always looking at energy holistically. So we looked at uh, fossil fuel-based solutions, but we also looked at uh, clean energy uh, solutions. So solar, wind, clean power generation, biofuels uh, and the like, geothermal. Um, and that investing that we were doing in research that we were doing in clean energy uh, was something that we got more and more excited about over the last decade as the costs for clean energy solutions dropped and dropped and dropped and these became much more competitive technologies than they were 10, 15 years ago. Uh, and eventually we got to the point uh, really starting in 2015 where I started to advocate for launching a climate strategy. Uh, and my thesis was very simple. Uh, it was that there's going to be transformational change in a number of industries, in the automotive industry, uh, in the uh, utilities industry, in steel making, in aviation, in all these different uh, uh, major areas of the market, uh, there are going, there's going to be transformational change. Uh, and we should be investing uh, in companies that are going to benefit from that transformational change. Uh, and so I started to push for the launch of, of a climate strategy, which would invest in clean energy, invest in energy efficiency, electric grid companies who are involved in overhauling the grid uh, to incorporate a higher percentage of renewables because our, our existing grids aren't well designed to handle the intermittency and distributed nature of, of renewable generation. Uh, we look at batteries and storage. We look at clean energy materials, materials whether people like it or not, uh, are at the heart of clean energy solutions. So going transitioning from fossil fuels to clean energy uh, doesn't absolve you of the need uh, to, to, to get raw natural resources. You're just using a different set of natural resources. You don't need coal, oil, and natural gas as much anymore, but you do need copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, vanadium, manganese, and all these other materials that underlie clean energy solutions. Uh, and so that's certainly part of our opportunity set as well. Uh, and, and we look at agriculture and water and other companies that are involved in helping the world adapt to climate change. Uh, so 
we, we looked at the opportunity set and said, hey, there are really going to be long-term multi-decade secular growth opportunities uh, in these industries. Let's launch a strategy that's able to capitalize uh, on, on the opportunities that we see in these industries. Uh, and we, it took us a little while to, to launch because you know, nowadays it doesn't sound that weird to have uh, a climate strategy, but in 2015, I'm telling you, it wasn't normal operating procedure. And in just a few short years, it's become uh, normal, but it was uh, perceived to be, even for GMO, where our founder is a huge climate advocate, it was a little bit outside the box. So it took a little while to get comfortable with launching it and then do all the paperwork. Uh, but we launched in uh, April of 2017. So we're almost five years uh, into running the strategy now. We have uh, around $1.1, $1.2 billion uh, in the strategy spread across a US mutual fund, um, the, the Australian trust that you mentioned earlier, and then a USITS vehicle for uh, the European market. And it's all listed equities? Correct. It's all public equities, um, which uh, I, I neglected to mention. So thank you for, for underscoring that. And, and, and how many positions typically would it hold? Uh, typically, we've been at about 100, 110 positions in the portfolio. So it's fairly diversified uh, on, on kind of a company name basis. It's also fairly diversified across different segments of the market that we, we think are uh, going to be a major part of addressing climate change. And, and its objective benchmark is what? Uh, the objective is really to generate strong absolute returns uh, over a long period of time. Uh, because we're uh, running a fund, you have to have a benchmark and we chose Acqui as our benchmark. Uh, Acqui is not a great proxy for what we're doing. Uh, and just to underscore how different what we're doing is relative to Acqui, our active share, uh, if people are familiar with that, uh, it basically means the amount of turnover uh, that would be implied uh, by going from our trading from our portfolio to the benchmark or vice versa uh, is 99%. Uh, so our, our portfolio is effectively totally and completely different equity exposure than you're going to get from Acqui or the broad equity market more generally. Um, but Acqui is a reasonable proxy for people's opportunity cost in investing in our strategy, which is why we chose it uh, as our benchmark. If you weren't investing in our strategy, you'd be investing in something that would be giving you, let's say, something like Acqui uh, type returns. And so if we didn't think we could perform significantly better than Acqui, we wouldn't have launched this strategy. Uh, and for the first few years uh, of the strategy's history, we've been um, fortunate enough to outperform by quite a bit relative to Acqui. Yeah, so the, the data I'm looking at uh, indicates since inception, you've had a compound annual growth rate of just over 19% per annum in the last three years, just over 21% per annum, and in the last one year at about 78%. Um, certainly those uh, those, those numbers in isolation look fantastic and uh, albeit over a short, shorter period of time than what most investors would tend to focus on. H how would you encourage investors in this space to think about returns or people looking at the fund? What sort of expectations should they have set in their minds to say compared to a, a normal mutual fund or, or Australian equities fund or international equities fund, sorry? I, I would say 
my expectations are that uh, the strategy is high expected return where we, what we've been able to accomplish over the last almost five years uh, is pretty rare. We've been investing, because one thing I haven't uh, mentioned is that we take a value orientation to investing in the climate sector as we've defined it. Uh, and, and what that means is we're not just going out and saying, oh, there's gonna be a lot of growth in hydrogen, so let's just pay uh, you know, a million times negative earnings or whatever, infinity times negative earnings to get exposure to that growth. Or we're not going to go and buy Tesla uh, at, once again, uh, an extremely uh, expensive level where I saw a chart just recently that showed Tesla's market cap was greater than the rest of the automotive industry combined, uh, even though they crank out a, a tiny fraction of the vehicles that their competitors do. Uh, so we're not just going to buy the stories uh, and the narratives. We're going to find companies that are profitable now, that are generating free cash flow now, uh, and that are, are uh, have proven business models. Uh, and really, we're taking also a little bit of a quality um, bias to to that this area of the market. We want proven businesses and proven business models. Um, and we're we're finding companies that we think are mispriced uh, relative to their expected level of growth. So we've been running a value strategy. Our portfolios on average been trading at a 20 to 25% discount, let's say to the broad equity market, yet our portfolio has been growing earnings at a much faster clip uh, than Acqui has. And you're not supposed to be able to do that, right? You, you buy companies at a discount typically because their growth prospects are poor relative to the, the broad equity market. Uh, and, and that's why you get them at a discount. Uh, but we've been able to to generate strong returns by buying cheap companies that are growing quickly. Uh, and if we can continue to do that, uh, we're gonna put up uh, very strong returns and, uh, and we have uh, since inception and hopefully uh, we can keep it up. But my, my assumptions, my expectations would be high expected return, but also high volatility. Uh, these are nascent, poorly understood industries that we're investing in. Uh, sentiment uh, seems to change on a weekly uh, or monthly basis, especially this year. Uh, every month, it's either up or down. Uh, and so this is a portfolio that I would expect to bounce around a bit, uh, but end up uh, at a much higher level than uh, current levels. Now, I had it on my list, and you opened the door on it. Tesla, of course, is a, a, a huge name in the space. And, and we've had Catherine Wood of Arc on the podcast previously. Uh, we've, who's a huge fan and of, of, uh, of, sorry, of um, Tesla and has been invested in there for a long time. And we've equally had some long short managers where they've actively called out, which is unusual for short managers to call out their biggest short has been Tesla. And so far they've ended up on the wrong side of that trade. Um, you, you sort of flagged there that uh, you know, Tesla at the valuations, you couldn't buy it. And, and we've, we've, we've heard in the past people like uh, Hamish Douglas at Magellan saying that you know, they really liked Amazon, but they could never buy it because they couldn't get comfortable with the valuation. What type of valuation would you have to see on something like Tesla before you could buy it? Um, well, there's no particular multiple, you know, but we we obviously do discounted cash flow analysis uh, of our our positions. Um, well, I shouldn't say obviously because GMO has a large quantitative 
uh, background, and we do have a quant model that we we look at as part of our process. So, uh, but we we do have a team of fundamental analysts. We have modeled Tesla to see what you would have to believe to think that it was fairly valued, and you have to believe some pretty dramatic things to think that Tesla is fairly valued. You have to believe that they're going to dominate the automobile industry in a way that uh, no company has ever dominated the automobile industry. It's a notoriously fractured industry with personal preferences driving uh, uh, the vast majority of the decisions that are made. Uh, so they'd have to do something which had never been done uh, and they would have to do it at a margin. Uh, that has never been uh, sustainably accomplished by any auto manufacturer as well. And they would have to do that in the face of tremendous competition because uh, they've been one of the only players in town in terms of a high-end uh, electric vehicle over the last few years. Uh, but every major auto manufacturer is coming out uh, with their electric vehicle lines as we speak. So um, you're talking about a company that's extremely expensive. You have to believe some pretty dramatic things to think it's fairly valued. Uh, and it has new competition uh, that's going to be showing up on a, 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 a monthly basis uh, for the foreseeable future. And that is going to be a cutthroat. If you don't think other people want to capitalize on electric vehicle sales, uh, you, you're, you're missing uh, something in the world. Uh, there, there's a big profit motive out there and there's a big profit opportunity that is going to be an extremely competitive area of the market. Uh, so I don't feel comfortable with it as a value investor. Um, you know, the ARC stuff is kind of just, those are, as far as I understand it, I don't pay a lot of attention to it, but they're ETFs where they're giving you exposure to factors. There, they don't really have to worry about valuations or whether things are, are good or bad investments uh, as much as whether they kind of fit whatever they're targeting uh, for that particular mandate. And Tesla clearly fits various mandates if you're talking about innovation or, or clean energy mandates. Now, Lucas, I'm, I'm a little bit dangerous in this area. I've just gotten through reading um, Bill Gates's book, How to Avoid a Climate Crisis. Um, but I was interested in the way they broke it up or, or Bill Gates broke it up into addressable areas where he believes the world needs to change in order to address the problem of, of global warming. I'm also interested in the areas in which your fund targets in terms of, you've spoken a little bit about clean energy, uh, battery and storage, electric grid, energy efficiency, technology and materials. Can you talk us through a little bit about the types of companies you're looking for and where you're most excited in some of those areas? If you maybe wanna pick two or three of them, just to give us some examples. Uh, sure. Um, biofuels is an area that's particularly interesting to us right now. Hasn't got anywhere near the attention, uh, the hype, the, the excitement that solar and wind have, have garnered uh, in the headlines or electric vehicles for that matter. Uh, but you find companies that have tremendous growth prospects uh, and, and one of the nice things about biofuels is that they have an impact now without a huge upfront CapEx uh, spend associated with them. So when you look at wind and solar, all of the cost, not technically all the cost, but almost all of the cost is in the upfront. You have a massive amount of CapEx to build out your solar array, uh, to build out your wind farm. But once you've built it, you, you have very little in the way of operational and maintenance, maintenance costs. Uh, similarly with electric vehicles, if you're going to have electric vehicles driving all over the place, what do you need? You need a charging infrastructure. That's incredibly expensive. So there's a huge CapEx spend on building out an electric vehicle charging infrastructure or hydrogen fueling uh, infrastructure or, or whatever else. 
Well, then you look at biofuels. You don't really need a new infrastructure. And, and just to give you a sense for what biofuels even means, uh, there, there's a relatively uh, new biofuel uh, called renewable diesel, which is a molecular substitute for conventional diesel, conventional ultra low sulfur diesel. Uh, it, it can be used as a substitute. So you can go to the gas station. Uh, you don't know that you're using renewable diesel, which is 80 to 90% cleaner from a carbon perspective uh, relative to fossil fuel-based, oil-based diesel uh, fuel. Uh, you don't know that you're using something clean, but you are. You may or may not know, but you don't need to know uh, is the point. So, so what's, what, what's this biodiesel made from? Because uh, I think most people would be familiar with ethanol and, and I think ethanol's extracted from corn. Uh, and, and I think from my readings that, you know, a lot of people saying, well, that's not really the solution because the fertilizers and everything that's involved in growing the corn and bringing it to market and everything else isn't that great for the environment. So, so what's biodiesel made from or extracted from that gives, us, gives it this positive quality for, for global change? Uh, yeah, so there are various feedstocks that you can use uh, in feedstock, just like with an oil field or with, with oil and gas companies, what is the name of the game? The name of the game is having assets. You know, they need an oil asset. They need a natural gas asset that they can develop. Well, in biofuels, the name of the game is your feedstock. What are you using? What's, what are the inputs that go into your biofuel production? Because you can have all the capability uh, in the world, but if you don't have feedstock, where are you? And to your point, farming for fuel isn't a great solution. That, that could be ethanol um, or corn for ethanol. That could be soybeans uh, for biodiesel and renewable diesel. But there are other feedstocks as well. And so we target companies and, and focus on companies where they have feedstock uh, that, is, that are waste products. So you can have used cooking oils, used cooking greases, animal fats, uh, things of that nature, which can be used as feedstock in producing uh, the biofuels. And when you produce biofuels using those clean, uh, relatively clean waste products uh, as, as feedstock, you end up with a much bigger positive impact from a carbon perspective, uh, meaning a, a much bigger drop in carbon emissions associated with the production of that fuel. Um, so yes, feedstock is very important. Uh, when you look, whether you're looking at renewable diesel, I was going to mention sustainable aviation fuel, which is a replacement for jet, or it can be a substitute, or it can be blended in with, with jet fuel. Um, there was just a, a flight that went on pure sustainable aviation fuel uh, in the last few days. Uh, so sustainable aviation fuel is an exciting um, emerging biofuel for the future, uh, because when you're, you're thinking about areas of the market that are particularly difficult to solve. We have our, our clean energy solutions for uh, the automobile market or, or transportation markets. We have our solutions for uh, the utilities uh, sector and electricity generation. But then when you got to aviation, loading up uh, uh, an airplane with like eight million pounds of uh, lithium ion batteries isn't a great solution, right? Uh, I don't want to get on that airplane. Uh, so. Uh, having some something a solution for that, uh, which is just getting started. We're just getting sustainable aviation fuel off the ground uh, right now, but that that could be a big impact on a high emissions area of the market, uh, which has been challenging to come up with solutions for. Uh, and I'll mention one more biofuel, and then maybe uh, something outside of the biofuel space: um, renewable natural gas. 
is another exciting area because what you're doing with renewable natural gas is you're going uh, to, let's say, a dairy farm, uh, a wastewater treatment facility, uh, maybe a municipal waste treatment facility, uh, and uh, i.e. a landfill, uh, and you're capturing the methane that's emitted as part of the, the normal natural decomposition uh, uh, process. And methane is tremendously harmful from a climate perspective uh, to, to the atmosphere. So if we can capture that methane and then process it and upgrade it into renewable natural gas, not only do you have uh, a, a clean fuel, but you're uh, displacing the emissions, uh, these massive amounts of emissions of methane, which are uh, tremendously harmful to the environment. Uh, and the, these companies uh, can profit uh, off of that. Uh, this. So uh, those are, are some, the, the biofuels area is rife with um, kind of scary, relatively poorly understood uh, uh, new business models and, and uh, biofuels companies. Uh, but we see uh, really tremendous growth prospects in the long term for them. And, and once again, there are some exciting things about them and that you don't need that, that huge infrastructure spend uh, to, make, to make them have an impact on the world. You can kind of use them with our existing jets, with our existing automobiles, trucks, ships, uh, et cetera, without a whole, whole new set of technologies or, or upfront spend. And Lucas, have you looked at well, solving one of the problems we have in how we build things? So, for instance, you know, the, the, the process of taking iron ore into steel, have you looked at some of the technologies around using hydrogen and, and, and other sort of technologies that are, are less onerous on the environment? Yes, uh, ironic that you uh, brought that up because I, I mentioned a minute ago that I was going to bring up something outside the biofuel space. And uh, the company I was thinking about was a company called GraphTech. Uh, and what GraphTech does is they produce ultra high power electrodes for electric arc furnace steel makers. Uh, and what electric arc furnace steel making is, is it's an alternative form of steel making relative to traditional blast furnace steel making that is much, much, much cleaner from a carbon perspective, over 90%, the full life cycle of electric arc furnace steel is more than 90% cleaner from a carbon perspective than traditional blast furnace steel making, which as we all know, uses a tremendous amount of coal and energy and is just a, a highly emissions uh, intensive process. Um, so GraphTech is not a steel maker. They, are, they produce these ultra high power electrodes, which they sell to the electric arc furnace steel makers all, almost all of the growth in steel making in the decades to come uh, is expected to be an electric arc furnace steel making when you talk to the industry experts and, and uh, steel executives. Uh, and so these companies have, uh, these electric arc furnace steel makers have strong growth prospects. Uh, it can be electric arc furnace steel making can be used in conjunction with hydrogen. So the, it's not a one or the other thing. It's hydrogen works on the, the um, inputs into the electric arc furnace. Uh, portion of the process. Uh, and if I told you all those things, you might think that uh, GraphTech was going to trade uh, at expensive levels, but it's trading at something like six, six and a half times forward earnings. So it is a very cheap way uh, of getting exposure to a company that's uh, really having a, a strong positive impact on the world. And Lucas, one, one of the things that, I, look, I said I was a little bit dangerous here, given my recent readings. Um, and of course, Bill Gates has been on the record talking about nuclear. And when I look at your material and your 
forecasts and projections for where markets and where opportunities lie, it doesn't appear that nuclear is high on the agenda or you, you don't see it as a huge solution, um, albeit that there are those who are saying, you know, if you look at the amount of deaths because of um, coal and the respiratory issues associated with particles in the air um, versus the one-off, you know, very, very well publicized sort of Chernobyl and Fukushima type of issues that nuclear is actually a, a very good solution that should be in the mix, particularly with the new age reactors. Um, am I right in summating that nuclear is not of huge interest to yourselves? Can you, can you comment on that, please? Don't get me started on nuclear. No, nuclear uh, is a very <laughs> interesting problem. Uh, you, I, for a second there, I thought you were almost implying that human beings were rational, which is uh, easily disprovable. Yeah. Uh, but yes, nuclear, if you go back to the 60s and 70s, and by the 60s and 70s, uh, at high levels of government, uh, it was clear as day that climate change was a problem. Uh, it was not, this wasn't a secret. Uh, like it, scientists knew it. High levels of government knew it. Climate change was a major problem. In the 60s and 70s, the technology existed to have smaller nuclear reactors uh, that uh, were much safer and uh, avoided the Chernobyl type risk. Uh, the, the, the reactors can be built in such a way that the traditional um, scary nuclear reactor that dominates the, the social consciousness of the world are these big things where you start a reaction and then you have a nuclear reactor to control that reaction or a nuclear power plant to control that reaction and harness uh, obviously the output of it. Uh, and then you have a backup system uh, that, that kicks in uh, in the case that your main uh, system can't control the reaction anymore. And then unfortunately a Fukushima happens and a tidal wave hits, takes down both your, your uh, reactor and the backup system and you have a disaster on your hands. Well, the technology has existed for many decades uh, to have smaller reactors where you, you have to continuously add to the reaction in order to keep that reaction going. And in that world, if a tidal wave comes in and knocks out your reactor uh, and, and the backup system, the, the reaction would just die out. Uh, on its own because it's not being continuously fed anymore. So nuclear is something which I would have been a huge advocate for many years ago. Uh, I'm still an advocate for it. I don't think it's a solution that should be ignored. Uh, it is political dynamite. You are relying on human beings to do something uh, that uh, is scary. And it's very easy to lose an election by running on a pro-nuclear campaign. All your opponent has to do is say, hey, this guy wants your children to have three eyeballs and you know the, everything to be contaminated and you to die horrible grisly deaths. And how many people really understand uh, what's going on with nuclear? Very, very few people. In the United States, I, I don't know, it's like less than half the people even know who the president is. So they're certainly not gonna understand the intricacies of, of nuclear. Um, we do have nuclear investments in our portfolio. Uh, but it is, it, it's not something that we're going to force a lot of exposure to. If we find uh, investment opportunities where the companies look really cheap using pretty reasonable base case assumptions, i.e. not assuming the world's going to all of a sudden fall in love with nuclear, but just continue to kind of move along at current pace uh, on, on nuclear projects, then we'll invest in it. But we're not going to, to kind of get, we're not particularly bullish on it, if that makes sense. Um, the other 
factor that's important to consider for people who are considering investing in nuclear is that clean energy solutions like wind and solar are getting so cheap and the cost of, of energy storage is becoming so cheap that it, it, it may already be cheaper. Uh, and if it isn't already, it may be in the next uh, two or three years to just do renewables with energy storage versus doing nuclear. Uh, and obviously one of those is much more uh, politically palatable than the other to, to most people. Now, Lucas, you flagged that you expect this part of the market to be quite volatile as people's views and markets sort of ebb and flow. And, and I suspect one of the things you had in your mind when you're talking about that is, you know, the recent COP26 and all the media that's been generated by that. What, what is your view of what has or has not been achieved there or, and or the outcomes from that? Uh, it's, you know, for me, it's always, I, I always take a wait and see approach on these kinds of things. It's too early to tell, um, even with the Paris Agreement, the right intentions, uh, but the, the, the goals uh, much uh, too muted to make uh, uh, as big of an impact as we need to make. No enforcement mechanism, no measurement mechanism in, in many cases. Uh, it's just not, the, the important thing for me is the high level commitment that the global community now has uh, to combating climate change, which didn't exist as recently as, as you know, 2015 prior to the Paris Agreement. And then for a few years there, the US had pulled out of the Paris Agreement now we're back in or in the midst of getting back in. I'm not sure exactly the technicalities, uh, but we're, we're certainly committed uh, under the current administration to it. So I think it's important that at a high level, uh, global governments are acting in concert on climate change. If you look at the three big economic superpowers uh, in the world, uh, China, Europe, and the United States, uh, last year, 2020 was the first time ever uh, that I'm aware of, that all three of them were really acting uh, in unison on climate change. China announced targeting decarbonization by 2060, which was far beyond any commitment that they had previously made. Uh, Europe was continuing to lead the charge uh, on climate efforts with a variety of, of different, uh, you know, they have the European Green New Deal and uh, Fit for 55 and all these variant red two and red three, which I think is Fit for 55, but there are all these, these different acronyms and and organizations. Uh, and then in the US, we had um, Joe Biden uh, elected and the Democrats getting control of Congress, at least to a tiebreaker vote. Uh, and, and that's a big deal because uh, in, in the United States, that party is much more focused on climate uh, as an issue. So it, it, at a very high level, I can't, I don't know the specific, I, I've read up on COP66 and all of the different initiatives, uh, but really until it all plays out, it's hard to know what to make of it, other than that that, that high level commitment is really, really important. And uh, of course, um, provides some very nice tailwinds for the kinds of companies that we're investing in. Uh, you're talking about extending um, various uh, subsidies and, and various uh, public policy support initiatives uh, by many years into the future to hit some of the commitments and targets that these countries uh, are making. And, and that's a big deal for a lot of these companies. Lucas, you, you've done a great job of explaining why your sort of value orientation at GMO coming into this space is of great benefit. However, I think it'd be helpful if you could maybe give some tips to some of our listeners about how to perhaps avoid some of the hype that's coming into this market. We're seeing 
from my perspective, a lot of early stage venture capital funds, a lot of investments per se, which you know, I don't want to say, but maybe greenwashing or similar and putting a shingle up and attracting funds because of this. And I know, I know only this week that you know, I, I had an opportunity brought to us where it was both crypto mining and green doing that in a renewable energy way, you know, using surplus renewable energy that the grid can't take to crypto mine. So it was kind of like the two hot buttons in market at the moment. Um, can you perhaps give our listeners some tips of things to look out for when investing in this space to make sure they don't fall into some of these traps that may be associated with very, very hot markets? Yeah, I can tell you about uh, a, a few things, not that any of them are easy uh, to do, of course. Uh, I, I wish investing were easy, but it's, it's quite difficult, uh, quite a difficult game we've chosen to engage in. Uh, but uh, one thing that we do is we pay a lot of attention to the industry dynamics uh, in which we're investing. So a company might be a clear mandate fit. Uh, i.e. Uh, it might be an electric vehicle manufacturer or a solar panel manufacturer or an energy efficient lighting uh, manufacturer. But if we look across the landscape and we see lots of other energy efficient light bulb manufacturers with very little in the way of any sort of competitive advantage or moat or edge that one has relative to another, uh, we're going to be very skeptical of those kinds of businesses. So I would, and, and that kind of has flowed through quite frankly to hydrogen, which you've mentioned a couple of times. Hydrogen is something which has um, potential uh, to have a big impact on the world and to be a solution in various different uh, areas. We, you mentioned steel making uh, in terms of energy storage, in terms of hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, uh, uh, amongst others. Uh, so there are a number of industries where hydrogen could have an impact. Uh, it doesn't mean that any of the hydrogen companies that are running around today are going to be the ones who are able to monetize that. Uh, if you look at the early days of solar, uh, there were lots, the, the, none of those solar manufacturers are still around, right? Uh, in fact, we're probably on the third or fourth generation uh, of solar companies. So the first two or three went extinct. Uh, and we're on generation three and a half or, or what have you. Uh, and finally, they became profitable. So uh, it's, it's easy to see growth. What's much harder is saying which companies are going to be able to monetize that growth, which companies are going to be able to generate profitability uh, based on that growth. So I would recommend that people um, not get carried away as easy as it is or, or to get carried away or as hard as it is to avoid doing it. Uh, try not to get carried away by the stories and the narratives uh, and the hype, uh, yes, some people will get that right because they're really speculating as opposed to investing. Uh, but I would recommend really focusing on companies uh, that are operate have some sort of an edge or operate in an industry uh, where uh, it, there are relatively few players or, or complex technologies. Uh, focus on companies that are reasonably valued, uh, especially relative to the growth uh, that we would expect to see. Um, and, and just try to keep an even keel in a long-term perspective. Uh, because if you focus on the short-term, uh, you're, you're going to get scared away at some point when there's a drawdown. Um, so uh, I, I would say those are a few uh, pieces of advice I would have. Well, Lucas, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate that. And congratulations on uh, setting up the fund and the performance of the fund to date. It's been fantastic. Uh, thanks for joining us at Inside the Rope. Thanks again for having me. It was a great conversation. 
Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.